Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By the late 19th century, the New Mexico Territory had a reputation for corruption and lawlessness. Bandits and criminals became local celebrities in the territory's papers. Their exploits splashed across the front page. Neighboring states were aghast at the celebration of anarchy they saw in New Mexico. As the El Paso Times scolded, in New Mexico, outlaws and murderers are fond of being interviewed. In the states, an outlaw, dodging the officers of the law, would not think of writing letters to the press to excuse his crime. And still some people wonder why New Mexico is not admitted to statehood. The disappearance of Albert Fountain and his eight-year-old son Henry on February 1st, 1896, only emphasized the belief that unruly gangs controlled the territory. The governor of New Mexico, along with the territory's law enforcement, were desperate to bring the Fountain's killers to justice. Finally, they could prove that New Mexico was not as lawless as it was perceived. Unfortunately, the Fountain murder case would demonstrate just the opposite. The corruption and rot in the New Mexican territory ran deeper than anyone ever thought possible. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the 1896 disappearance of Albert and Henry Fountain. Last week, we covered Colonel Albert Fountain's attempts to civilize the dangerous New Mexican territory and the ensuing attack on Fountain and his son. This week, we'll cover the possible suspects and the tumultuous trial, which was more about politics than justice. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On the evening of February 1st, 1896, the local postman, Saturnino Barella, stopped by the Fountain household to check in. He was worried. He suspected Colonel Fountain had been run off the road by outlaws. It was a credible suspicion. Albert was in the middle of prosecuting a notorious group of cattle thieves, the Tularosa Gang. His life had been threatened multiple times in connection with the case. His wife had expected him to come back from court much earlier that day, but Albert never arrived home. Two of Albert's sons, Albert Jr. and Jack, along with Albert's father-in-law, immediately gathered a group of men to conduct a search. A caravan of horses galloped into the dark, empty desert toward Chalk Hill, where Saturnino Barella had seen Albert's wagon tracks veer off the road. Even though it was pitch black outside, the posse hoped to find Albert and his young son, Henry, before they disappeared for good. Instead, the men made some grim discoveries. They found two bullet casings in the dirt. And even more worrisome, they later found a large pool of blood by the road. Judging from the blood spatter, the posse believed Albert was shot just as his wagon veered off the road. He left a six-foot-long blood trail before his body fell off the carriage, slamming into the ground. The Fountain brothers' hopes of recovering their father and Henry alive were fading. Then the posse made another startling discovery. Over here! There's some stained fabric stuck in the sand here. Let me see. It looks like it's... What's wrong? You don't recognize it? It looks like a money pouch. The piece of fabric was actually eight-year-old Henry's small handkerchief, covered in blood. Tied in one of its corners were a dime and a nickel. The bloody clues confirmed that Albert and Henry were in serious trouble. The search party was more determined than ever to find the father and son, dead or alive. As the men continued their search, they ventured further from the road. On the afternoon of the second day, they found Albert's deserted wagon, 12 miles from Chalk Hill. Near the carriage were the tracks of three horses and three different sets of boot marks from their riders. They measured the markings using a pocket ruler. One set of boot marks had a distinctly worn left heel. The wagon itself had been ransacked stripped of all of its valuables. Several boxes were left open, most of their contents missing or thrown to the ground. The wooden box holding all 32 indictments against the Tularosa gang was also gone. About the only thing left behind was the threatening note Albert Sr. received several days prior, warning him to drop the court case against the Tularosa gang. The men continued investigating, following the tracks of the horses away from the ransacked wagon. About five miles down the way, 
It looked as if the criminals had set up camp. One clue gave the Fountain Brothers temporary hope. A set of tiny shoe prints was found near the campfire. Albert Jr. was sure the shoe prints matched eight-year-old Henry's exactly. Sadly, on closer inspection, the men realized that the tracks were fake. They were made using only Henry's right shoe. Perhaps the criminals were trying to confuse the investigation. Or maybe it was a cruel joke. Something to give the Fountains false hope about Henry. The discouraged search party continued to follow the horse tracks as the sun set over the cold winter desert. But they reached a fork in the trail, so the posse split up to cover more ground. That night, a light snow fell over the exhausted men. The next morning, February 3rd, one of Fountain's wagon horses was found abandoned, covered in dried blood, likely from its owner. The search party continued on, following the criminals' tracks. The hoof marks eventually led them to Oliver Lee's ranch, the same Oliver Lee who is rumored to be the leader of the Tularosa gang, and the same man Albert Fountain had successfully indicted just a few days ago. Lee himself eventually wandered out of the ranch house, approaching the men warily. What do you fellas want? This here's my property, you know. Mr. Lee, we were hoping to use your well to water our horses. We've been out all night. Well, sure. But I expect to be paid for it. Of course. What are you fellas doing out here anyway? We're looking for Colonel Fountain. He and his son went missing about two days ago. Oh. Would you and your men here at the ranch like to join us in the search? To find the jerk who framed me for some trumped-up crime? No thanks. Oliver Lee abruptly left, climbing onto his horse and taking off toward the mountains. Once Lee was safely in the distance, the men measured the tracks of his horse. They were an exact match to those found at the crime scene. When a member of the party went to the ranch house to pay for the water, he saw Billy McNew, another member of the Tularosa gang. He'd also been indicted by Albert. The search party left Lee's property deeply suspicious. The trail from the crime scene had led directly to their number one suspects, the Tularosa gang. They hoped they had enough evidence to get Lee arrested. They headed back to Messia to tell the rest of the family what they discovered. In the meantime, local newspapers ran the story of Albert and Henry Fountain's disappearance. The headline of the February 4th El Paso Times asked, Were they murdered? When Albert Fountain's colleague was asked for comment, he replied bleakly, That's what a man gets for prosecuting cattle thieves in New Mexico. The dramatic story spread quickly, and other newspapers couldn't help but sensationalize the crime. The Socorro chieftain did not parse words in its condemnation of the murderers. The murder of Colonel Fountain and his little son is the work of fiends, and they should be exterminated just the same as you would go after a band of wolves. We do not want anyone to understand that we are in favor of lynch law. Not by any means, but we believe that these murderers should be hunted down, their identity established, and the shortest road to the gallows should be taken. 
Needless to say, these dramatic newspaper reports whipped the citizens of New Mexico into a frenzy. The more civic-minded residents of the territory were sick of New Mexico's lawlessness and demanded justice. The New Mexican governor, William Thornton, knew he needed to act quickly to quell his constituents' anger. Normally, it would be up to the county sheriff, a man named Guadalupe Ascarate, to investigate the crime. The problem was that Ascarate was believed to be under the thumb of the Tularosa gang. Even worse, Ascarate's deputies included several suspects in the Fountain's disappearance, like Oliver Lee, Billy McNew, and Jim Gilland. Governor Thornton decided he needed an outsider to investigate, someone who would be free from the tangles of local politics. Thornton chose former Lincoln County Sheriff Pat Garrett to head the investigation. Garrett was a rugged man who took a tough stance on crime. In fact, his claim to fame was stopping the notorious outlaw Billy the Kid, who Albert Fountain had once defended. Garrett was a methodical investigator. He decided to interview the Fountain family to see if anyone knew who may have wanted Albert dead. But when he arrived, Mariana Fountain and her daughters were inconsolable. Garrett had never seen a family more distraught. As he left the home, he feared that Mrs. Fountain or one of her children would go mad from grief. Garrett continued to collect testimony, interviewing other locals about Albert's final days. Several people said they saw Oliver Lee and Billy McNew around the crime scene in the hours before the murder. One witness even alleged he overheard Lee and McNew say they would kill any man who would attempt to prosecute them. Other members of the Tularosa gang made threats too, including William Carr and Jack Tucker. Neighbors in La Luz saw Carr and Tucker trailing Albert and Henry a few hours before they disappeared. Even more damning, Carr was heard saying Fountain would never again prosecute small cattlemen. Once he'd exhausted all possible witnesses, Garrett paid a visit to the crime scene. He arrived at Chalk Hill on March 1st, hoping to find any sign of the Fountain's bodies. Despite days of searching, he was unsuccessful. Governor Thornton, meanwhile, was growing restless. It had been a month since Albert and Henry had disappeared, and Garrett hadn't found enough concrete proof to lock up the Tularosa gang for good. It was time to bring in the experts. Thornton hired the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to come and look into the Fountain's murders. Thornton was sure the best detectives in the nation could solve the case. But even the greatest investigators in America couldn't stop a gang of criminals so powerful they could bend the law to their will. We'll continue the investigation right after this. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the Earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. 
Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. In March of 1896, New Mexico Governor William Thornton hired the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to investigate a murder. Albert Fountain and his eight-year-old son Henry had disappeared a month ago and were now presumed dead. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency was founded in 1850 by Alan Pinkerton. The agency had offices across the United States, with Pinkertons working as strikebreakers, bodyguards, and private eyes. In Western territories like New Mexico, employees of the agency often hunted fugitives, including famous outlaws like the Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now the Pinkertons would be tracking the Tularosa Gang. The first detective sent by the Pinkerton agency was John C. Fraser. He was a stickler for details which served him well as a detective. When Fraser arrived in Santa Fe on March 4, 1896, he immediately checked in with Governor Thornton. He wanted to know all the specifics of the case before he started his investigation. Fraser was surprised that the governor seemed to already be sure of the culprits. Oliver Lee, Billy McNew, and Jim Gilland. He just didn't have proof. That was where Fraser came in. Fraser went to Las Cruces to gather information. He spent several days talking to people who knew Albert, and with their help, he was able to construct a timeline of Albert Fountain's activities in the days prior to his disappearance. The crafty detective also spent time undercover in local saloons, hoping to pick up gossip on the murders. One of Albert Fountain's friends, Major Llewellyn, was sure he knew who was responsible for the crime. Like others, he was convinced Oliver Lee's Tularosa gang was guilty and that their crooked lawyer, Albert Fall, was the mastermind behind the attack. He told Fraser so when Fraser interviewed him. Well, I don't have hard proof exactly. But if I'm wrong, why are these men harassing me, threatening to kill me even? Who's threatening you exactly? Fall, McNew, Lee, and many others. They're all bad apples. Always have been. Why, Albert Fall shot Deputy Williams twice in this very town, just on the street over there. Really? Was anything done to stop him? Shh. That whole gang is protected by the Democrat sheriff. There's been 11 murders here and no convictions. And I'm telling you, many of those were committed by Lee or one of his cronies. Now, he claims that all these killings were in self-defense, but if that's so, why'd Lee jump the ranch of every man he killed? It was practically an open secret that the Tularosa gang was responsible for the Fountain's death, and apparently others as well. But no one had enough evidence to arrest the men. And try as he might, Fraser couldn't convince anyone to testify against the men either. They were too fearful of the wrath of the Tularosa gang. As Detective John Fraser struggled to collect testimony, he hoped he could compare notes with Pat Garrett's investigation. Unfortunately, Fraser found Garrett less than helpful. I've collected testimony from several suspects here in town. 
Mr. Llewellyn, in particular, seemed to know quite a bit about the case. If you wanted to have a look at my notes, I No could... need. Already talked with him. Oh, uh, good. Then I assume Oliver Lee is indeed a suspect? Maybe. Well, I think it would be helpful to interview people along the road to Tularosa, and I was wondering if you could make that trip with me. No one's going to talk to you. They're all too scared to say anything. I see. Honestly, what we need is for people to stop gossiping so much about Lee. Your investigation is not helping with that. It was clear that Garrett did not want Fraser's help, which definitely frustrated the detective. Getting information out of Garrett was like getting blood from a stone. Not only was Garrett unhelpful, he sometimes outright lied to Fraser. Garrett told the detective that Governor Thornton didn't want him traveling on the Tularosa Road, but Fraser later received a letter from the governor saying the exact opposite. It was unclear why Garrett was being so stubborn. Fraser suspected it was because Garrett was worried about losing the reward money. If the Pinkerton detective found the Fountain's killers instead of him, he'd collect. Meanwhile, politics were beginning to creep into the investigation. On March 13th, Albert Fall met with Pat Garrett. Fall told Garrett that he wanted to use his considerable political influence to make Garrett the sheriff of Doña Ana County. It was clearly a scheme by Fall to get into Garrett's good graces, and it worked. Garrett was desperate to become sheriff because of his financial woes, and he would take any support he could get, especially from someone as powerful as Fall. Garrett claimed that he could remain impartial despite Fall's favor, but Fraser had his doubts. Fall was known for his corrupting influence, and it looked like one more official had been brought under his sway. Noting Fall's power in New Mexico, Fraser wanted to interview him before leaving Las Cruces. He also still needed to speak with Oliver Lee, the lead suspect. Garrett, who was now on friendly terms with Fall, helped organize the meeting. Almost as soon as Fall and Lee sat down in front of Fraser, Fall began disparaging Albert Fountain, his longtime personal and political rival. Now, I'm an honest man, son, and as an honest man, I must admit to you something. I did not like Colonel Fountain any more than I would like a snake. And how did you come to this opinion of Mr. Fountain? I had my dealings with him as a fellow lawyer, and that man was crooked. He would mold witnesses and testimony to suit his case. Not only that, the man was a murderer. He shot a prisoner point blank, claiming the man had run away. Truly, that man was no good. None of Fall's testimony could be corroborated, and given his history with Fountain, it was likely flat-out lies. Fall's interview grew more and more outlandish as it continued, while he claimed to believe Albert and Henry were dead, he also implied it was possible Albert had been caught in an affair and had run away. Fraser knew to mostly ignore Fall's comments on Albert. He pushed on with the interview asking about Fall's whereabouts on February 1st. Fall laughed as if it was absurd that he would be considered a suspect. And besides, he was at his gold mine in Sunol. Fraser then turned to Oliver Lee to begin his interview, but before the questions had even started, Fall interrupted. Let me stop you there, Mr. Fraser. 
Mr. Lee here has been falsely accused by a great many people in this town, and as his lawyer and friend, I have advised Oliver to not tell anyone his whereabouts on that day, or any other day for that matter. I see. I have papers that prove his innocence in this matter, but I'm not prepared to show them to you just yet. Unsurprisingly, Detective Fraser learned very little from his interview with Lee. Fraser noted that Fall watched Lee's every move during their talk. In fact, at one point, Lee started to say something, but stopped as soon as Fall shook his head. From the interaction, Fraser knew that Fall was coaching Lee. Fraser came out of the meeting more suspicious of Fall and Lee than ever before. A few days later, Pat Garrett was successfully declared the county sheriff. Ostensibly, Garrett could now finally concentrate on the investigation instead of politics. But Fraser feared that Garrett had fallen completely under the control of Fall. Having worked nearly a month on the case, John Fraser was ready to leave Las Cruces as his contract expired on March 25th. He returned to Denver, where he wrote a long letter to Governor Thornton, summarizing all he had learned in his investigation. I feel satisfied that this entire matter will come home to Oliver Lee, and that Bill McNew, Jack Turner, Bill Carr, and others are implicated in this matter. I am thoroughly satisfied that Fall was not at Chalk Hill, but I am not satisfied that he was not a party to the conspiracy. Fraser urged the governor to continue the investigation, as Fraser had been handicapped by a lack of time, as well as Pat Garrett's reluctance to share information with him. Thornton agreed and sent more money to the Pinkerton Agency. The agency then dispatched another detective by the name of William B. Sayers to continue the investigation. Sayers arrived in Santa Fe on April 15, 1896. After meeting with the governor, Sayers' first order of business was to interview a prisoner by the name of Ely Slick Miller. Miller was currently serving a 10-year sentence in a Santa Fe penitentiary as a result of Albert Fountain's prosecution. The prisoner had also been involved in a plot to murder Albert in 1894, along with a man named Ed Brown. Brown had never been prosecuted, and Miller was convinced that Brown was involved in the killing of Albert and Henry Fountain. In his interview with Sayers, Miller was more than willing to throw Brown, along with many other former colleagues, under the bus. When we planned to off Fountain a few years back, Ed said he knew a guy who would do him in for $100. I don't have a doubt in my mind he would do that again, knowing Fountain was back on his case. And Mr. Brown was part of the same group led by Oliver Lee? So was I before all this. Now, if you're looking to get one of Lee's men to talk, Ed is not the one. Ed is not a talker. What about James Gilland? Jim? No way. He's one of those young fellas who wants to be bad. He has a good deal of nerve. Your best bet is Billy McNew. Why's that? Billy is completely under the thumb of Lee. But if you got him away from Lee, you could break him down. He's a weak man. He's afraid of Lee. Because Detective Fraser had already investigated McNew, Sayers concentrated instead on Ed Brown. Multiple witnesses near Brown's home had reported Brown returning to town a few days after February 1st with exhausted horses. 
as if they had been on the run. Ed Brown had also bragged on multiple occasions that he could find the Fountain's bodies, but he'd recently been arrested for unrelated cattle rustling charges. So Sayers met with Brown in his jail cell. Anyone who spoke of me killing Colonel Fountain is lying through his teeth. They can't prove a word of it because it simply isn't true. Is it true you had a grudge against the Colonel? It may have been true in the past, but when I last had charges against me, I had a mutual friend of ours visit with him to plead my case. Mr. Fountain sent a letter back saying I don't need to worry. He wouldn't prosecute me. Now, is it likely that after a man had sent me such a message that I would make an attempt to kill him? So who then, in your mind, still has a grudge on Mr. Fountain? All I'll say is if Lee and McNew killed that young boy, they are no longer friends of mine. Any man who could kill a child is too dangerous to live. While Brown's alibi was a bit spotty, Sayers came out of the interview believing that Brown did not take part in Fountain's death. Returning to Santa Fe, Sayers reached the end of his contract on May 12th. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency submitted its second report to Governor Thornton on May 14th. It confirmed that Lee was the most likely suspect, with several possible accomplices. But only two days later, the entire file disappeared from the governor's office. The entire investigative report vanished without a trace, much like Albert and Henry Fountain themselves. We'll hear how the case dramatically concludes after this. And now, back to the story. From 1896 to 1898, almost no progress was made in finding Albert and Henry Fountain's bodies or bringing their killers to justice. Sheriff Pat Garrett thought he knew who the murderers were, but he was unwilling to act due to Albert Falls' incredible power in New Mexico's courts. While the Fountain's friends and family pushed the sheriff to make arrests, Garrett was convinced that Fall would be able to prevent his friends from being indicted. But the new governor, Miguel A. Otero, urged Sheriff Garrett to take action. Governor Otero wanted the New Mexican Territory to become a state, and one of the main things preventing statehood was New Mexico's perceived lawlessness. Otero couldn't stand that criminals involved in one of the most high-profile murder cases in New Mexican history remained at large. So, when the Doña Ana County Grand Jury met on April 1st, 1898, everyone expected that indictments would be sought against Oliver Lee and his henchmen. But the grand jury met and adjourned without so much as mentioning the Fountain case. That inaction was purposeful, however, Garrett knew that Fall had several operatives in the grand jury. After the grand jury recessed, Garrett approached the judge and requested bench warrants for Oliver Lee, Billy McNew, James Gilland, and Bill Carr. He promised that he could prove that the four men had murdered Albert and Henry Fountain. As soon as the warrants were issued, Sheriff Garrett went to arrest the men. He captured McNew and Carr easily. Lee and Gilland, however, evaded capture and skipped town. The sheriff did not put much effort into finding Lee or Gilland. He thought with McNew and Carr in jail, he might be able to make one of the two men rat out their boss. Unfortunately, Garrett's interrogations led to no confessions. Even without confessions, 
The legal proceedings moved forward on April 9, 1898. The prosecution brought William Llewellyn to the stand. Llewellyn had been a friend of Albert Fountain's and had been part of the initial search party after Albert disappeared. Llewellyn explained how the horse tracks found near the Fountain's wagon had led directly to Oliver Lee's ranch. His testimony also corroborated the earlier testimony of Thomas Brannigan, who had measured Bill McNew's footprints when the search party had visited Las Cruces, and they were an exact match to a set of footprints found at the crime scene. More interesting testimony came later in the trial when Riley Baker spoke about a conversation he had with Jim Gillen. And this was about a year after Colonel Fountain went missing. Yes, sir. Jim and I were up on Chalk Hill, and Jim mentioned that this was the very spot he had watched the men who were searching for the colonel and his son. Did he mention why he was watching them? Well, no, sir. But when he mentioned the colonel, I told him that his murder was awful enough, but the murder of a child is truly horrible. Jim had an odd response to that. He said Henry Fountain was a half-breed, and he was no better than a dog. Was there anything else he said on that day that sticks out to you? Yes, sir. He said if a body were needed before anyone could get convicted in the Fountain case, it would be a long time before anyone was. The testimony the prosecution presented was damning, but Albert Fall, who was serving as the defense counsel, found several ways to discredit witnesses. Throughout the hearing, Fall asked pointed questions to those on the stand and often tried to purposely confuse witnesses. For example, when a doctor confirmed there was human blood on the scene, Fall asked if he could conclusively tell if the blood was that of a horse, a coyote, a rabbit, or a man. The doctor was forced to say no, despite his near certainty it was human blood. Fall's defense was only partially successful, however. Bill Carr was released by the judge due to lack of evidence. Lee, McNew, and Gilland were to be held without bond until the next meeting of the grand jury. The only problem was Sheriff Garrett had still not arrested Lee or Gillen. Garrett was willing to be patient, however, as he still had McNew behind bars. He tried to get McNew to confess, but the young man stayed silent. With McNew tight-lipped, Garrett was forced to locate Lee and Gilland. He conducted a search at the end of April and one in June, but found no trace of either man. On July 10th, two deputies located Oliver Lee and Jim Gilland at a remote ranch in the mountains. When the deputies returned with news of their discovery, Garrett immediately put together a posse to apprehend the fugitives. The group of men followed Lee and Gillen's tracks to the ranch, arriving just before sunrise. The two fugitives were not in the house, but Garrett soon realized that they were sleeping on the roof. Garrett, followed by two deputies named Kent Carney and Jose Espelin, climbed a ladder to the roof and found the alleged criminals sleeping. Garrett yelled at the men to surrender. Lee and Gillen woke up startled and grabbed their guns, causing Deputy Carney to fire off a shot. Garrett shot next, but the roof protected Lee from the bullets. One of Lee's bullets nearly hit the sheriff, who dodged out of the way just in time. Oliver Lee laughed wildly as he shot. (laughs) Lee, 
We have you surrounded! <laughs> Corny, get down! Uh, uh. Deputy Carney fell off the roof after being struck once in the groin and once in the shoulder. For a moment, the shooting stopped, and Lee yelled out to Garrett. You have a lot of nerve to shoot at a man while he sleeps! Carney shot too quick. Are you too hurt? No. Will you surrender? I don't think I will. Word on the street is that you intend to kill me. You'll be safe and sound. I don't intend on killing anyone. Now will you surrender? Pat, your man is shot, and we could keep shooting. What I'll offer you is a ceasefire. Lee allowed Garrett and his men to go get help for Carney. When Garrett came back for Carney a few hours later, Lee and Gilland had already left. Carney died the next day. Lee and Gilland eventually surrendered themselves willingly into the custody of Otero County Sheriff George Curry but only because Sheriff Curry was a friend of Lee. The fugitives were supposed to be held without bond. However, thanks to their friendly relationship with the sheriff, Lee and Gilland were often seen outside of their cells. Because of all the press coverage on the murders, the two men were local celebrities. Even if Otero County wasn't treating Lee and Gilland as dangerous criminals, Doña Ana County prosecutors were convinced that they were. The prosecutors decided to try Lee and Gillen together for the murder of Henry Fountain. They'd focus on the young boy's case first, then seek justice for his father. The first trial took place on May 25, 1899 in Hillsborough. The tiny mining town was completely overwhelmed by the crowds who came to witness the trial. Its only hotel was not large enough to house all the new visitors. Tent towns popped up on the north and south side of town. The northern encampment was populated by the prosecution and had its own chef. The southern encampment was nicknamed the Oliver Lee Camp and held the defense. Its food was supplied by a chuck wagon. The tension between the two sides was palpable. When Albert Fall saw Jack Fountain, Albert's son in town, he immediately went to court in an effort to place a peace bond on Jack due to threats Jack had made to Fall. Your Honor, I am just a boy with not a lot of experience. I will say, though, I never said I wanted to murder these men, even if they do deserve killing. If the court wishes, I will state what I said. You may make your statement, Mr. Fountain. I said if my father's body was ever recovered, there is one man I would kill first, if I was not killed myself. And who is this man? Albert Bacon Fall. Unsurprisingly, Jack was placed under peace bond until the trial was completed, but the tensions only increased as the trial started on May 26th. The trial of Oliver Lee and Jim Gilland was very similar to their preliminary hearing. The prosecution brought forth many witnesses who attested to strange behavior by Lee and Gilland. They also had testimony that described how tracks around the crime scene led to Lee's ranch. Fall was more prepared this go-round, however. He had several witnesses, all friends or family of Lee's, who corroborated Lee and Gilland's alibi. Fall presented the case as if his clients were political scapegoats and had no connection to the murders at all. In his dramatic closing argument, Fall emphasized this point, 
comparing the corruption in Doña Ana County to a filthy creek. There in Doña Ana, they have gathered together, as does the slimy filth on the edges of a dead eddy, a lot of broken-down old political hacks. It was in such a dead eddy as I described that there arose this plot for the persecution of Oliver Lee, a conspiracy to send an innocent man to the gallows. Closing arguments were completed on June 16th. After a nearly month-long trial, the jury was sent to deliberate. Shockingly, the deliberation lasted only eight minutes. Oliver Lee and Jim Gilland were found not guilty. Supporters swarmed Lee and Gilland, and the celebration in the courthouse lasted over 30 minutes. Despite a significant amount of evidence of their guilt, the men had become folk heroes. All charges against Lee, Gilland, and McNew were dropped by the end of the summer of 1899. No one was ever tried for the murder of Colonel Albert Fountain. Lawlessness had once again triumphed over justice in the New Mexico Territory. The freed criminals went on to live very different lives. Oliver Lee became a successful rancher and state politician. Jim Gilland bought a large ranch in 1902 and lived there for many years. Billy McNew continued in his criminal ways, shooting and killing his brother-in-law in 1915. Albert Fall became the most famous of them all. The powerful New Mexican went on to be a state senator and eventually Secretary of the Interior for President Harding. Fall resigned in disgrace in 1923 for his involvement in the Teapot Dome scandal. He spent one year in a New Mexican prison. As for Albert and Henry Fountain, their bodies have never been found and justice for their deaths has never been served. So, with all that said, I think it's pretty obvious that Oliver Lee, Jim Gilland, and Bill McNew were the killers. They had the clearest motive and multiple witnesses testified against them. I'll also add that I think Albert Fall was the mastermind behind the murders. I agree, for the most part. Lee and his gang were almost certainly responsible. But I'm not so sure Fall was. There is not enough evidence that points to Fall. Still, even if he wasn't involved, Fall undoubtedly helped the Fountain's killers escape justice. Whatever the truth may be, stories like Albert and Henry Fountain's murders are often used as examples of just how wild the Wild West really was. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Among the many sources we used, we found Murder on the White Sands by Corey Recco extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. 
Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, and Julian Smith. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 